We had a concept for how we wanted to show the amount of error budget that you've burned and how quickly it's, uh, you've burned it. You know, it's just how, how it fit our thought process at the time. And so we built an entire you know, user interface around that. And then as we started showing it to people, we, we noticed that they, they were confused by what we had built. It, it wasn't until Alex Hidalgo joined the company and he said, well, you know, there's some other ways that we could represent this. Like, have you thought about doing it this way? That we realized we really missed the mark with, with the first version that we built. My name is Brian Singer. I'm the co-founder and chief product officer at Noble9. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Brian Singer built the cheat code for SLOs and error budgets with no math required. All this and more on Code Story. Brian Singer has always been interested in computers. He was into gaming in high school, which he claims is what led him to an engineering degree in college. He got his start in the industry with low-level stuff, designing ASIC chips. And post that, he branched into product development, got his MBA, and funny enough, started working in marketing for the software industry. Eventually, he started his own company. From his professional journey, a big takeaway for him was it's hard to start a company fresh out of school because you don't know anything. He has two boys at home, and he's a soccer coach, an avid golfer, and a skier. He finds that the most creative moments for him are away from the digital space doing analog activities with other people. His prior company was called Orbitera, which he eventually sold to Google in 2016. He spent the first year at Google migrating the product off of AWS onto GCP. Once this was done, it was inquired of him about what the SLOs were for the product. This led to the spark for his current venture. This is the creation story of Noble9. So Noble9 is a, a product that helps companies establish service level objectives, which are ways to measure the reliability of user journeys, services you're running internally, software, APIs, and so on. SLOs basically allow you to measure that reliability in a way that adds context about how your customers are using the product into those measurements. For example, I might have a password reset screen, right? I may have you know, monitoring on that password reset screen that tells me what the response time is uh, you know, when, a, when a customer hits that page. An SLO would tell me how many times the customer is successful resetting their password. Right, so then you can establish a threshold around that and start to understand if there's issues in your infrastructure, not just at the, at the, the level of, I have an elevated error rate, but hey, I'm expecting this to work a certain way for a customer this amount of, of the time, and I'm not meeting that threshold. SLOs are something that have been employed at Google to run you know, sort of the largest services that you've heard about for probably over, over 10 years. You know, there's a great book that uh, one of the folks at Noble9 wrote, uh, Implementing SLOs, that's Alex Hidalgo, and, and he wrote that based on a lot of his experiences using them at Google. 
For me, like my first exposure was having an SRE say, hey, we need to set some SLOs for this product. And like, I felt like I knew the product pretty well. This was something that you know we had kind of built with our own blood, sweat, and tears over years, and we felt like we knew what we were doing running it. But it wasn't until you know I was asked to set that SLO that I really stepped back to think, well, what what is the actual experience here that the customer is expecting from a reliability standpoint? And for us, you know, we we could actually figure those things out as product managers really quickly. You know, I knew a customer wanted the data that we had to be fresh within a certain amount of time. And I knew that because if it wasn't fresh, I would start to get phone calls from customers that were upset. SLOs let me basically establish that baseline and say, okay, you know what, 99% of the time, the data is going to be fresh within two hours, right? And then you measure that over a period of, of months and quarters. And, you know, sort of the aha moment for me was we actually weren't meeting that, that, uh, that SLO. We were actually failing that SLO. I had what I needed to go back and say, you know, we need to reprioritize our entire roadmap around, you know, reliability or making sure the data is fresh or whatever it is. You know, those those concepts really stuck with me. Um, they're they're really powerful. What we found was by focusing on those things, you know, we had the data to say, you know, this is a problem for us. Over time, we actually saw improvement in the SLOs and to the point where. You know, stopped getting those angry customer tickets. Uh, stopped having, you know, being being worried in the middle of the night, right? Just because of the focus from setting that one SLO. Um, so that's something that just stuck with me uh, during my time at Google. Obviously, a lot of Google services are are run based on their SLOs. There's a there's a concept called uh, an error budget, which is basically like how much unreliability we're willing to accept. Um, so SRE teams at Google will think about, hey, we may be having a small outage. Uh, we're burning some error budget. Do we need to go defend the SLO, right? Is this, is this a big enough issue that we're actually going to eat, eat through all our error budget? Um, and then you can put policies in place. If we've run out of error budget, we're too unreliable. Maybe we need to go pause the feature development queue and start just working on fix-it tickets, things like that. Again, you know, these concepts struck me as really powerful. And what was interesting to me is that they weren't widely adopted um, in, in the industry. Sort of state-of-the-art for monitoring was looking at error rates and looking at CPU usage. And, and when I looked at, you know, really closely sort of through my entrepreneur's lens at why that was, it wasn't that the concepts were so hard to understand. It's that the implementation of error budgets in an enterprise is actually quite difficult because you have the classic problems of data silos, of sort of it being inaccessible, of overcoming institutional momentum. So our idea for Noble9 was let's build a platform that makes these concepts accessible to sort of your large standard enterprise with a lot of you know different uh, types of infrastructure. It's not all running on Borg like it is at Google. It might be running you know some stuff on legacy, some stuff on prem, some stuff in the cloud, whatever, and see if we can bring SLOs to sort of your run-of-the-mill Fortune 500 enterprise. And sort of that was the start, and we've been off and running for the past couple of years since. Where, where did the name Noble Nine come from? It wasn't the first name we thought of. I'll tell you that the Noble Nine name resonated with us. Uh, for a couple reasons. One is the noble gases are the most stable and reliable of elements, kind of like that tie-in. And then uh, we consider ourselves to be part of the, the noble pursuit of reliable software, which makes everybody's lives better, I think. Uh, and then, of course, nine, you know, it's got a ring to it. And uh, we also, you know, we're helping uh, companies find uh, not the most number of nines, but the right number of nines. Yeah.
Well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me how long it took to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. You know, from when we founded the company to when we shipped our first beta, you know, that we put in front of a customer, it was probably about nine months, nine, ten months. And it started, I think, very waterfally, right, with just, you know, starting to lay out requirements on paper. Hey, what are the what are the user journeys that we wanna that we wanna build? I like to start just thinking about like all the user journeys that I, I would potentially want to have, you know, from from the the standpoint of you know what we're trying to accomplish. You know, then uh, I worked very closely with um, our UX lead, who was actually the second hire that we made here. Myself, I'm not a UX guy. I think that's part of you know you, you got to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, and UX is really like something that uh, you know I, I can point and say that's not working for me but like coming up with really good UX is, is amazing and I think that's for, for, for any company like a, a core part of uh, uh, their DNA has to be incredible UX whether it's enterprise or, or, or consumer. So we worked on you know building out some initial prototypes. Uh, we did a lot of that work in uh, Adobe actually started showing early on some of those prototypes to you know our target customer not I wouldn't say prospective customer at this point but like the profile of people who we felt like would be using the product eventually and at the same time as we were going through that we started to build out prototype development environments uh, started to you know sort of settle on what our overall architecture would look like once we got to the point where we felt like we had a set of prototypes that we wanted to build, that we felt like were you know right for the, the first uh, set of user journeys, we built a we built a uh, proof of concept just of the architecture, um, the stack we wanted to use. We have a, we're a Go back end. We use a, a Vue front end. We looked at React. We looked at Vue. We settled on Vue. We decided to go with with Go instead of Java. You know, we sort of built out a basic hello world platform with all of that scaffolding. And then we started building our user stories in Jira. User stories that are, are bite-sized enough for developers, both on the front end and the back end. I'm also a big believer in having really good uh, technical project management. So that was another early hire for us, uh, sort of a product owner slash TPM to help us break those, those high-level user stories into to pieces that are digestible for developers. And then of course the work starts and I would say, you know, from when our actual, you know, hands on keyboard with, with the product to the, the MMVP was probably about four months um, until we had something we could show to customers. So it was like five months of prep work, front end hiring, design work, and then four months of, of hands on keyboard. Um, we ended up throwing out a lot of the first UX that we built as we got feedback from early customers. It's like, no matter what you think, right, you're gonna build something that people don't understand the first time. A lot of our uh, early feedback was around, how do you you know, onboard somebody to this platform? Um, how do you make that process really simple? Um, we definitely spent a lot of time uh, sort of smoothing that over, um, sort of iter you know, going again and again and again with different prospective customers. And then I think you know, we, we, we ended up uh, going to like a full beta in uh, about a year after we started working. And then four months after that, we launched the product to GA. So it was about a year and a half from when we started to when we had a product that was in the market that we were selling. So, so you got your MVP right, you're getting feedback, you're evolving your product. How did you go about that process of progressing your product and maturing it? 
and, and framing it a little bit, how did you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? From a feedback standpoint, really just uh, going through and onboarding customers and then asking them questions. What did you like? What did you, you know, what, what do you think could be improved? The UX, sort of doing that UX research is definitely a skill in and of itself. Like I'm not the, I'm not the, the, the best. Uh, I've seen really great UX researchers at, at work, but you know, I've, I've picked up enough along the way. Like when you're in a startup, you don't have the luxury necessarily of hiring like a really skilled UX researcher. So you gotta get by yourself. And, and you know, I like to put it in front of folks and let them try to figure it out on their own a little bit. You start to, you start to see patterns of like what what the failure modes are, where where are they getting confused, you know what's drawing their eye, like what's 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 catching their attention. You know, for us it was you know a couple things. We wanted to build something that was really accessible to developers and could fit in with uh, sort of um, existing sort of build CI/CD processes. So from day one we started with a um, sort of slows as code approach where. Everything in the product is configured as YAML. Um, we, we built a CLI tool really, up, really early on. We got feedback from customers like, this is amazing. Like, this is absolutely like what I want uh, in terms of defining my SLOs. But it was really hard for them to get the CLI set up and configured. <laughs> we would probably spend like a couple days, you know, going back and forth, like paste this key and paste that key. And because you, you haven't built a lot of the scaffolding on. Like that gave that gave us, you know, a really clear signal that we needed to spend time improving that process. Um, so we built, uh, you know, basically a lot of self-service around getting the CLI set up. Same thing for how we we get data to calculate SLOs. Uh, we connect to data sources like Prometheus and Datadog. We use, uh, in some cases, like an agent-based approach to do that. We you can you run our agent alongside Prometheus. Now, getting that agent set up and installed, right, that, that needs to be something that's like pretty straightforward. Um, so, you know, the first MVP of the product, we were sharing a, um, you know, gzipped agent on, on Google Drive to, to where we are now, right, we, we knew we had to make that smoother. So now you go, you go into the product, you set up a new data source, and it gives you basically all the configuration code for that agent. You know, things like that, right, are, are pretty easy to figure out from a roadmap standpoint. And then you start to hit a point where you're having enough customer conversations. You start hearing the same things over and over again about, oh, it'd be really cool if I could do this, or I, I want to be able to see the data this way. That helps you kind of prioritize the roadmap. Um, so for us, I'd say early on, it's like a lot of you know best guesses of like, we think that this will be really cool to build. As you get more feedback, it's you get clarity around what is actually valuable for those customers. So I hear you talking about CLI and, and making it accessible for developers. Did you build early on any specific key integrations or anything that would, you know, would be attractive to developers? Did you key on any, anything like that? You know, I don't know, like, if there was, like, one specific integration, um, you know, the certainly, like, from a setup and configuration standpoint, you know, our stuff works well with cloud native. You can run it outside of cloud native environments. But, you know, if you want to run our, our agents in a Kubernetes cluster, it's like copy paste, you know, drop it in, you're you're off and running. Likewise for the CLI, right? Like getting it packaged up as a as a brew package. The syntax that we put in there was 
sort of Kubernetes-esque syntax um, as far as, you know, we, we actually, we, we call the command line utility slow, slow kettle. So you use slow kettle get slows, you get a list of all your, all your SLOs. So, you know, those are pretty key. Um, and then in terms of like what you actually do with the with the SLOs, like when, when you get an alert that something's out of out of whack, um, you know, we, we, we knew early on we needed to integrate with uh, uh, downstream platforms that developers use to get notifications. So that's Slack, Jira, PageDuty, you know, those are all first class. But then as you go into larger enterprises, things like ServiceNow, you know, other tools that are that are maybe more more prevalent in the enterprise. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? We knew going in culture is so critical for any startup and, and people have to, you know, really believe in the vision of what you're trying to do and understand the goals. And so, you know, for us, number one about building the team was transparency with the people that we targeted. Basically, you know, making it really clear to them, you know, what the contribution was we thought they could make, um, you know, what what we're trying to do uh, with the company, what our what our goals are, and and what we thought the opportunity was, and and clear with what the risks were as well. Like, you know, these are the things we don't know that we're going to figure out. In terms of in terms of building out that team, I think finding the right people to put in leadership positions because you kind of look at the size of the company. If you're going to be like a ten or twenty person company, you don't need a ton of leadership outside of like the founding team typically. But once you grow past 30, you're not managing, you know, 15, 20 people day to day, right? You have to bring in people that, you know, can break that work, that work down and 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 follow it and help people out. So, you know, early on knowing the kind of company we wanted to build, we looked for people with uh, really strong leadership qualities that could build a, build a really strong culture and had had worked in you know sort of similar type environments you know our our cto has has worked for you know many different startups you know that's the environment he 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 likes to be in he's got you know he's got the skill set to work for you know any of the fan companies or anywhere that he wants but he really likes being in at the early stages and of solving you know really hairy problems with this with the startup I'd say the same thing with our with our VP of engineering, right? Somebody that himself has been a startup founder. Um, so that's something that's really attractive to us. People who have like tried it on their own, right? Are, are willing to take that sort of entrepreneurial leap and then bring that into the day-to-day of what they're doing. You know, I, I've always I always found it a little funny, like, you know, being at Google or, you know, any of the other sort of larger tech companies. They always say that, oh, we're looking for people to, to bring like entrepreneurial spirit into the company. But that, you know, there's just, there is bureaucracy there. Like you're, you're going to be told no more than you're going to be told yes. So, um, you know, we like to think that, that here it's like, yeah, you know, if you don't do something, it's not going to get done. If you see a problem, figure out the solution, right? Nobody's going to stop you. That's probably more than anything else. What, what we look for in people is, uh, you know, people that aren't, aren't just going to accept things at face value and, you know, if they see something that's not working the way it's supposed to work, are going to go take it upon themselves to find the solution for that. Well, let's switch to scalability. And I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be here, but uh, I, I, I'm excited to hear your answer. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? 
We actually built for scalability, but within within reason. Um, so we started off by sketching out sort of where we thought we'd be in terms of number of customers, number of SLOs uh, that we'd be processing. We built the system to scale to, to sort of that level. There's always more, you know, there's always the risk of over-engineering to, to scale um, and over-engineering to reliability, right? That's something that we, we talk about quite a bit. You, need, you want it to be reliable enough, but if you over-engineer reliability in the system, you're going to create something that's probably brittle and that is probably going to be very, very expensive to run. We built those tolerances out and, and we engineered to them. I would say about 15, 20 services now, like independent um, composable services that we run. Each one of them is designed to fail, you know, independent from the others to scale horizontally. And I think the great thing is like, there's a lot of off the shelf technology that you can use today to, to build horizontally scalable systems. Like we use a lot of Kafka, you know, obviously we're running in Kubernetes. I would say the only thing that's like not that scalable is like you save your configuration data back to a, a relational database like that, you know, that that's going to have its uh, its limitations. But that, you know, that can be engineered out over the over time. I always take the, the standpoint that like you're probably going to be re-engineering the key, key components of your system like every two to three years anyway. So, you know, don't especially as a startup, like don't go crazy with scalability, but like you want to be able to handle that first wave of usage that comes and then you can start to start to build out behind that. We're actually not SaaS only. We use some different third-party technology to be able to deploy on-prem, um, to deploy single tenant instances to other clouds. And that has gotten way easier over the years uh, with, with Kubernetes, with Helm and Ansible. And we use a, a third-party product, I'll, I'll give it a plug here, called uh, Replicated. You know, combination of those technologies means that we can actually be really, really nimble. So it's not just like scaling in terms of, you know, hey, we have a big SaaS and we're going to scale that to like a bajillion customers, but it's scale in terms of like, uh, we can actually deploy when and how the customer wants it. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I would probably say the the user experience that we've built for how you see the SLOs that you've created, how you can sort of drill into those those SLOs, see the underlying data, the burn rate, the charting that we built there, and and how it all sort of updates in in real time. Um, we see a lot of solutions out there. They didn't really think through the SLO use case end to end, like how. You know, if, if I'm going to run my infrastructure and this is going to be the thing that's like at the top of the stack, tier zero for me, um, how do I want to expose that to the company and other teams and, and how do I want to interact with it myself? So I'd say just the way that we've been able to build that out has been uh, and, and the feedback we get from customers around that in terms of how it's a, how it fits their mental model um, for these things is probably the, the thing that I'm most proud about. Let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So those very same user journeys, we had a concept for how we wanted to show the amount of error budget that you've burned and how quickly it's, uh, you've burned it. You know, it's just how, how it fit our thought process at the time. Um, and so we built sort of an entire, uh, you know, user interface around that. And then as we started showing it to people, we, we noticed that they were confused by what we had built. We had, we had the, the error budget and bar charts. It, it wasn't until Alex Hidalgo joined the company and he said, well, you know, there's some other ways that we could represent this. Like, have you thought about doing it this way? That we realized 
we really missed the mark with, with the first version that we built. So we went back and we actually redesigned that entire UX um, fr from the ground up. And I'm really glad that we did it because it is, uh, you know, like I said, it's probably the, uh, you know, the, the highlight of the product. It's the thing that people see first and, and gets the most enamored with it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say like, you know, even, even if you mess up the UX the first time, it's like, it's probably going to happen and you just can't be afraid to go in and sort of spend the resources to fix it. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? For the product, like it's it's about making the process of creating SLOs easier and more accessible. There was a great thread on Twitter that our COO put up yesterday, like what is the hello world of SLOs? And you get like a thousand different answers. And and you know, it's a it's it's a you know new science, this resilience engineering. And we can do a lot more on the product to make it easier for people that don't have a lot of experience to sort of build their first SLO and improve the SLOs that they have. So we have some exciting things that are coming down the pipe with respect to that. And then on the team side, uh, you know, we're we're at a, I think, a really comfortable size right now for our company. Um, you know, we're going to continue to invest in our go-to-market and building out our sales team and sales engineering and support and customer success and like all of those um, sort of customer facing functions. Um, and, you know, I think it just, it's just a matter of how fast the market uh, continues to develop and, um, you know, how many customers we can reach with, with the message. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, just building one of those organizations that can scale and, and scale fast. And, and on the engineering side, like we, we continue to add engineers, like, I, I think that the, the scary thing is, you know, you hit your stride as an engineering organization and you're like, well, if we, you know, if we keep increasing the size, are we, are we going to start to, you know, get in our, get in our own way? So, you know, we're focused on, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, we have the right processes in place and the right structure in place that the engineering team can keep growing. Let's switch to you, Brian. Who influences the way that you work? You name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. You know, I, I was fortunate when I went to business school to be able to sort of be around um, some fantastic entrepreneurs that I was able to learn from. And I, I'd say one person that uh, that really stands out for me is Freddie Carest, who's the um, COO over at Okta. He was not afraid to get on the phone with anybody didn't matter the industry, like didn't matter the um, the fact that this person was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Like Fre Freddie was comfortable reaching out to them and, and acting like he was doing them a favor. Getting sort of a sense for you know, hey, that's what it takes to to be an entrepreneur. Like you have to be willing to put yourself out there to not take no for an answer. In some circumstances, you know, you have to take no for an answer. But and and then just like the ability to coordinate people to get them all marching in the same direction. Freddie, like I'll never forget, was the uh, sort of the chair of the MIT 50K, it was called back then, which was the you know pitch competition. And just seeing how he ran things, how he got everyone on the same page, um, you, you know, I'd say that really influenced how I, how I think about, uh, you know, managing the organization. We talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think, you know, challenging the assumptions that we made early on about the, um, 
the maturity of the industry with respect to SLOs. Uh, so our assumption going in was like, hey, these companies that run infrastructure like Google, uh, that have hired Google SREs, you know, your sort of maybe B2C companies like hypergrowth, like companies like, I don't know, like Reddit, like Pinterest, like we, we figured these folks have probably all figured out SLOs already. Like they're probably already running, you know, their own stacks. Like, you know, that's not going to be our market. Our market's going to be your mainstay enterprise companies that are trying to modernize. And, and that actually turned out to not be the case um, to, 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 to the point where like we probably should have been more aggressive early on about about just sort of casting a really wide net in the market, not focusing on like, you know, one particular customer segment. What we found is while a lot of those folks, a lot of the SREs and a lot of the ops people working in those companies, you know, had experience at Google and with SLOs. Um, they didn't have the tools to like overcome the institutional inertia to to really get adoption of of SLOs uh, in in some of these companies, um, or if they did, you know, they they were spending a lot of money on homegrown solutions that didn't work very well. So we've actually been able to make quite a bit of uh, of progress in in those types of companies, and you know, I I think uh, just sort of challenging our own assumptions about like what the market looked like early on probably would have, would have helped us, uh, you know, you know, maybe maybe get more feedback earlier or, or get into more customers earlier. The last question, Brian. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Get your product in front of uh, as many people that are in your target demographic as possible to and, and what you really want to test for is is whether you're, you're really solving a pain point for them that they're going to be willing to spend money on or is this something that they think is cool and they're they're willing to play with it for a little bit but it's not really it's not really uh, you know solving that big of a pain right that's like that's the hardest thing to figure out when you get to the former, like you have something that is going to take off. A lot of other problems that you might have raising money or hiring people or whatever are solved by just building a product that, that is a really good fit that solves a really, really big pain. Um, but you can't figure that out without talking to people, without, without getting their feedback. I volunteer on the MIT Delta V, which is like a startup incubator they run over the summer. Um, so, like you're saying, like promising entrepreneurs that come through, and you know, I'm just reminded of, of a company that came through this year that early on, you know, they had some basic ideas and, and they were really interesting ideas, but they hadn't talked to enough enough people yet uh, in in their target market. And by the end of the summer, they'd probably done about, I would say, 75 customer interviews. And their idea had totally morphed in terms of what they were going to do, but but they had actually settled on something that was solving a huge pain point for these people. And, you know, if they had just been building in, in a vacuum, like they might have built something that was like really cool, but wouldn't have gotten much adoption. Now, you know, if they, if they end up going through and building this uh, product, I think it'll be, uh, you know, very successful. Well, that's great advice, Brian. Well, Brian, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Noble Nine. You're welcome. It was great to be on. Thanks, Noah. I appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. 
Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.